Galatians chapter number three. This is our 13th message in this book of Galatians as we're journeying through because Galatians helps us to know how to discover and find freedom. And we are here moving to the end of chapter number three. In chapter one and two, Paul's giving a very personal uh, intimate testimony, description of his ministry, moves into chapter 3 and 4. He's given the theology, the, the doctrinal basis for what he's dealing with and helping people understand how they can get free and find freedom in Christ. In chapters number 5 and 6, he's going to deal with the practicality, how to apply all of this to our life. You know, the Bible is a practical book because it's a powerful book because it is God's Word. And I'm glad we have it this morning. We can open it. If you have it, would you join me and stand out of respect for the reading and preaching of the Bible? We'll look at Galatians chapter number 3. We'll begin our reading in verse number 23. Now, there are chapter divisions in your Bible, and I've said Galatians chapter 3, and I've given you a reference. Now, these chapter divisions were not written by the Holy Spirit of God. He didn't give them to us. When they had this, they would have had a scroll, a scroll or parchment and they would have just unrolled this and it would have all been together and they would not have had these chapter verse divisions like we do. I've got to dismiss our children, don't we? Yes, it will be a different kind of a service if I do not. So our children uh, can be dismissed. They'll go over towards the children's ministry at this time. I don't know if the children tipped me off or if it was the parents' big eyes there. Um, <laughs> And so we'll head over and we can uh, pick them up after the service. Please do pick them up after the service. If not, they'll be given a can of Red Bull and um, child services will be contacted. All right. Uh, chapter number three. These, these references I'm mentioning, they're not, uh, these Bible chapter divisions are not given to us as the inspired word of God, but they are helpful. And they help us be able to locate things or uh, if we had what Paul would have had, it may take some time to be able to locate where some of those things are. But sometimes they, they give us, uh, don't quite give us a flow of thought if we just think chapter 3 ends and that's it, it with that thought and then Paul changes his mind. For in this passage of Scripture, we really need to go down through chapter 4 to get Paul's thinking and what Paul's trying to say. And we'll do that. We'll just go right into chapter 4. So look, if you would, please, in verse number 3. Chapter 3, excuse me, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23, but before faith came. We were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is, uh, 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 there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we... When we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, 
made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Look at it again, verse 9. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? This will be in two parts. We're looking at Paul, what I believe to be Paul's thought. And that is, why turn back now? Why now, after having known God or being known of God, why would you want to turn back now? Thank you. Please be seated. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. When he says, I'm afraid of you, he doesn't mean he's afraid physically. He is saying, I'm afraid concerning you. I'm afraid for you. I'm deeply distressed for you. Why? Because he says, lest I've bestowed upon you labor in vain. Here you see Paul's pastor's heart coming out. His concern about the spiritual welfare of these who have been saved. One writer calls this verse 11, the words breathe tears. Because Paul is brokenhearted to see these newly saved people become confused by legalism, finding themselves enslaved to bondage. And the same thing is happening today. There's still danger today. That's why our discipleship is so important. That's why when a person gets saved, it's so important to understand that God doesn't save a person to pat them on the back and say, I'll see you in heaven, do the best you can. No, he saves a person to move inside that person to help them understand a quality of life and an inheritance that he's provided. See, what makes heaven so wonderful and so glorious is not the gates of pearl or the street of gold. What makes heaven so wonderful and glorious is because of Jesus Christ who will be there for all of eternity. And he's the very one that moves into the very life and being of one who trusts Christ. And Paul says, once that's happened to you, why would you want to go back to some other kind of way of living? And today, so often people who do get saved and they know the Lord they've adopted this piece of religion and this piece of religion and they're entangled once again in the very bondage though it may seem different than the bondage they experienced before salvation it's still bondage and Paul is trying to help them 
And so this morning, again, we're looking at this thought, and he's really going to get into it in chapter number four, as we pointed out. Why would you go back? And he, and he hits that a little bit more. But I want us to close out chapter number three as he talks about a, an understanding of what we are in Christ. Because of what we are in Christ, and he's going to go into chapter four, and he's going to get to this matter of adoption that's going to have such a helpful picture as designed by the Holy Spirit to help us understand even more significance as to what we received in Christ. But I want you to see a few things. We'll have these main points on the screen that will help you as you follow along. But he tells us, first of all, that before a person gets saved, they are imprisoned in bondage. There's an imprisonment before Christ. Look at verse 23. He says, but before faith came. In other words, before we exercise faith in Christ, he says we were kept under the law. We were shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And so he begins to talk about the law. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. And he, he, we've looked at this and the significance of the law. And what Paul is giving us here is this deep insight as to what it was like before a person is saved. Now understand, this matter of salvation, he, he's talking not about people who are just religious, but he's saying salvation before faith came, before you came to this awakening, this understanding that I need Christ, before a person meets Christ and, and experiences the work of salvation in their heart, you're in prison. You were born that way. Sometimes people say, well, I've always been saved. Well, that's not possible. Because the Bible teaches we're born coming into this world separated from God. Why? Because you've got bad genes. And so do I. They go all the way back to your ancestors and mine. And we do meet somewhere in that family tree of the human race. And we can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve where sin entered into this world. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians that because of that sin that entered into this world and Romans, Paul speaks of that, we're told that it, it, it is spread throughout all of human history. Every mankind is born with the plague, the disease that has stained our soul and there is no cure apart from Jesus. But he says we're imprisoned before Christ. So he talks about this matter of the law. And by the way, Paul never says that the law contradicts the promise of God that, that he gave earlier on to Abraham. And we've looked at that in the past. But rather, the law cooperates with the fulfilling of God's purpose. See, today, a lot of people even will say, and a lot of churches have changed their leaning, have changed their direction. We, we often say it, it's the matter of uh, people are going in, they're looking for a place to feel comfortable. And I hope you feel comfortable. If you're a guest, I hope you feel like a guest and not like a visitor. I know it's difficult when you walk inside of a, an establishment to know what's on the other side if you've never been on the other side of those doors before. And people often, they're not sure what's on the inside of these doors when they walk in. But I hope when you walk in, you experience a welcome. I hope you experience the, the love of God. And, and that can be displayed in many different ways. But the presence of God and, 
And, but however, a lot of times people are looking for something that just makes them feel comfortable. I'm not quite sure that all of us at all times would be just comfortable if we were in the very presence of God physically in the body of Jesus Christ as he walked. Why? Because Jesus knew all things. He knew the thoughts of man. He knew the heart of man. And when someone was sitting there in their mind thinking about how can I trick Jesus, he knew that. The fact that God knows you, he knows the number of hairs, he knows which number belongs to which hair, he has the stars called out by name, that's encouraging. It's comforting, but it's also convicting. The very fact that God knows who you are, it ought to be a reminder that he knows what I need. See, a lot of times people come into church like they go into the restaurant or go into the store and the thought, the motto is the customer's always right. And so people come into church the same way and sometimes they'll, somebody will drop me a line and say, I think you ought to do this. and I think it ought to be this way. But we do have a guidebook that tells us how we ought to do a lot of things. And certainly there are some preferences and certainly there are some flavors that come out of personality. But ultimately what we do and why we do it ultimately comes from that which has been forever settled in heaven is called the Word of God. Amen. The customer's not always right, neither am I, but God is and the Word of God's always right. Amen. And therefore there's a lot of churches that will go what we call trendy. You know, trendy, and, and so it makes people feel a little bit more at home. Malls are trendy. People want a, a church that reminds them of a nightclub. And there are churches that have music that sound like what you'd find in a nightclub. Some people go into a service and they, they like it because it reminds me of the comedian that I like. And it, it was kind of a comedic hour and it was attached to a little bit of Bible study. And, and, and so it's, it's a trendy feel. While malls are trendy, the church ought to be timeless. Amen. We're not trying to be old-fashioned like 50 years ago. We want to be timeless like 2,000 years ago. And so people today are still saying, well, I don't see the importance of um, emphasizing the law. We're under grace. And what they're thinking is, you don't tell me what to do. I can wear whatever I want to wear. I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can listen to whatever. I can do whatever I want to do because I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. But understand this. Paul never said 2,000 years ago that the law, it hurt the purpose of God or the promise of God. He never said that the law contradicts the purpose of God or the promise of God, but rather Paul taught under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit that the law of God given by Moses and passed down through, that the law it actually cooperates with the fulfilling of, the, with fulfilling of God's purpose. See, while the law and grace seem to be contrary, you say, well, haven't you been preaching that you, you can't live both? Well, yes, yeah, what he says. But while we, we think of them oftentimes as contrary, God and Paul are telling us that they're actually complementary. If you're ever going to really live in the grace of God, you've got to know something of the law of God. 
Paul never said that the law was bad. He said in Romans 7, it's good. I wouldn't know grace. I wouldn't know Christ had it not been for the law. But what Paul was telling us is while the law is good, the law is not the answer. So what is the law for? See, before Christ, we're in prison and bondage, and the law is, is there to help those who are in prison and in bondage because the law, according to verse 21, I'll not read it, but verse 21, the law was never given to provide life. The law is kind of there to tell us you need it. You know, it's like uh, somebody's sick, they put a thermometer in their mouth, well, I guess thermometer to your head. I mean, you got thermometers all kinds of ways. Now, some establishments, they got them on the wall. It's like shooting an infrared dart at you as soon as you walk in to see if you have a temperature. But, but the, 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 the thermometer can say, you're sick. But the thermometer is not going to help you get well. It's just a standard. It's just a standard giver. The law was never given to provide life. The law was given, according to verse 19, beginning of the verse, and verse 22, to reveal sin. We've talked about this. You wouldn't know that you were uh, running a stop sign if there were no stop sign. You wouldn't know that you were speeding if there was no speed limit. The law is simply there to reveal I've broken God's law. The law's good. The law's just not the answer. The law was given according to verse 23 through 26. What Paul is saying, the law is given to prepare the way for Christ. See, I'm not going to take medicine for something that I don't have. I know that's contrary to a lot of people. Why are you taking that? I don't know. My wife just gave me a whole sack of pills to take and I don't even know why you're taking it. You idiot. But I do the exact same thing. She brings them to me in a baggie, and I don't know what they are. I'm just fascinated all the different colors as I find something thick that I can drink it down with. The law is given to prepare the way for Christ. But he's talking about this matter of before we're saved, we're in prison. Now, notice this in verse number 26. Move on to a second thought. He says, for ye are all the children of Christ, excuse me, all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And here he speaks of a second thought, and that is one's incorporation into Christ. Before you're saved, we are imprisoned. We're in bondage and sin, and the law says so. But once you come to Christ, the Bible way, we're incorporated into Christ. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about regeneration. Regeneration. Generation means birth. Re means new. New birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, by the way, Nick in John chapter 3 was one of the most religious men of that day. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning that he would fast 
twice a week. He gave 10% at least of all that he had. He wore Bible verses stitched into his clothing and around his head. He was a Pharisee. He was a communicator, a teacher of God's law. And the Bible says that a Pharisee came to Jesus, whose name was Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at nighttime and he says unto him, Jesus, you must be someone comes, that comes from God, for no man can do the things that you do, the miracles you do, except it be of God. Jesus did not even say thank you. That's a nice compliment. He didn't even say to Nicodemus, well, praise the Lord. No, Jesus looked him in the eyeballs, the most religious man of that day, and he said, you must be born again. In fact, he emphasized three times, you must be born again. You must be born again. You'll not see heaven or enter heaven unless you are born again. And Nicodemus scratched his head and he said, well, how can a fully grown man enter back into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explained the difference between physical birth and spiritual birth. Every one of you have had a spirit, excuse me, a physical birth or you would not be here. Physical birth is how you've entered into this world. The spiritual birth is how you'll enter into God's heaven. But not everyone who's had a physical birth has had a spiritual birth. See, if I were to ask you, Brother Rice uh, here, uh, when's your birthday? You would say what? February 11th. But if I were to say to Brother Rice, when's your birthday? He'd say, preacher, I don't have one. I've always been alive. Now, we have a group of men here on the security detail, and they would know to keep an eye out on Brother Rice. Because people who say, I don't have a birthday, I've always been alive. Well, we have special coats for people like that. They usually tie off in the back. <laughs> no, everyone has a birth date. You may not remember the event, but you know it took place and you have the date. Many of you have a certificate and you've heard stories about it. But what Jesus is saying is Nicodemus, just as certain as you've been born physically, you'll never experience my heaven relationship with me until you've experienced a spiritual birth. You know, one of the things about my physical birth, September 8th, 1972, save you some time, I'm still 49, but one of the things about it is I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't choose it. I didn't choose how. I didn't choose where. I didn't choose who I'd be born to. One of the things about a spiritual birth is that you do have a choice, but the birth process, you have nothing to do with it. You just have a say-so as to whether or not you want it to happen. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The spiritual birth. Now, I've said to a lot of people, have you ever been saved? In other words, do you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Was there ever a time in your life where you knew that if you died now or a few years from now, that you are 100% certain right now that you have eternal life, forgiveness of sins? Are you 100% certain that you're a child of Almighty God because there was a time in your life where you knew sin was your problem 
Hell was your consequence, but Jesus was your answer. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. Was there ever a time that you did what the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved? Was there ever a time where you said, I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. And you placed your faith, your trust, your dependence upon Jesus to save you. Sometimes people have answered this way. Well, I've always been saved. Just as you've not always been alive, there had to be a time you entered into this world, neither is it possible that you've always been saved. You have to have a time in which you knew sin was your problem, hell was your destination without Jesus, but Jesus was the answer. And you deliberately and on purpose cried out to Jesus to save your soul. And when you did so, he did what no man could possibly do. He took all of your sins, past, present, future. He washed them all away. He gave, gave you eternal life. And he actually moved inside to take up residence and to never leave you nor forsake you. You say, I'm not sure if that happened to me. I want you to know this. Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now's the day of salvation. It can happen to you today. You say, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. I think I may be saved, but I'm not sure. 1 John 5, 13, John says, these things have I written unto you that you may know. If you're only hoping, wishing, guessing, thinking, you are missing what God has in store. You can know, you should know. I wouldn't go out of here. I would not go out of here only hoping and wishing and thinking I might be saved. Life is too short. Eternity is too long. Heaven is real, so is hell. And you don't want to miss it by a hoping and a guessing and a wishing when you can go out of here with absolute confidence and certainty that God loves you. Jesus died for you. And when you called upon him, by the way, he died one time, only one time you have to call upon him to save you and that he does a good job when he promised to save your soul. I'd get it settled. I would get it settled. I wouldn't go out of here thinking, well, I just, I'm in a new place. I don't know these people. I wouldn't go out, I wouldn't go out of here gambling with your soul. You don't get a do-over after you've taken your last breath. And you don't know when your heart's going to stop ticking. So now's the day, now's a good time, according to God, to get it settled. But he's talking to us about this matter of regeneration. Now, one of the things I want to point out to you is in verse number 26. He says, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to understand that he is not teaching some kind of universal fatherhood of God. There are some people who believe that God is the father of every single person. Years ago, a group of, of um, musical artists of every genre got together and put together the song, We Are the World. We are God's children. But that doesn't, that's not to be found in the Bible. We are not all God's children. Unless you're talking about the we that Paul's referring to when he says ye. We know this because we've read the book 
That when Paul says, for ye are all the children of God, he's not referring to every single person. He's referring to those that he's called brethren. The ones who have exercised faith in Jesus Christ. The ones who have made it definite and purposeful to put their faith in Jesus to save their soul. See, we are all All of us, every person in this county, every person in this state, every person in this United States of America, everyone in North America and South America and the Eastern realm and in the Western realm and in the regions beyond, every human being who has ever breathed, who has ever been conceived, every human being is a creature of God. A creation of God. But we're not all the children of God. In fact, Jesus taught there were two families. And the Bible says when he was here, Jesus said to one group, you are of your father, the devil. I want to tell you, that's not God's family. Jesus was not a part of that family because there are two families. We're all the creation of God, but we are all born in sin. And we do not automatically nor accidentally become a child of God. Just as I did not accidentally or automatically become married. It took a choice on my part and a choice on her part. And we participated in that requirement that pronounced us to be man and wife. And the same is true with becoming a child of God. So he's speaking to those who have been regenerated, who have been saved. He's not even talking to all church members. You can be a member of this church and still miss heaven and go to hell. Joining the church doesn't get you to heaven. Joining Jesus Christ is what gets you to heaven. And so he's referring to this fact of those who have been saved are the children of God. And then he refers to how he says it's by faith in Christ. In other words, religion is about what you do. Keep the Ten Commandments. Do the best you can. Give and serve and do. And by the way, when you get saved, you ought to want to do the best you can for the Lord Jesus. You ought to want to be able to serve him and give, but your serving and giving and doing doesn't get you to heaven. I remember being in Cuba with evangelist Tom Farrell, who's in heaven now, but we were there and we were talking with the family and this matter of salvation. And they kept saying, I don't think we need to get saved because here's what we do for the church. Here's what we do. We give and we're missionaries and we serve and we do and we do and we do and do. But we kept going back. Was there ever a time you knew you were a sinner? You knew you were on your way to hell. You needed Jesus and you called upon Jesus. And they said, no, but we do know a time when we started living our lives for the church, referring to the Catholic church in this instance. And they were saying we were giving our lives and we serve every week. We give and serve and do. And they said, we're just like you, pointing to me and the other preacher. And Tom Farrell spoke up and said, there's a big difference between your life and mine. He said, you've sat here and you've told us you're doing what you're doing to get you to heaven. And he said, I'm here to tell you I do what I do because Jesus has already taken care of me getting to heaven. It's the difference of why? And if you're thinking you're going to heaven because I do this and I do this and I don't 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 do this, you're living religion. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. There's nothing that I can do to get myself into heaven. Not a thing. If you think you have to do something to get to heaven, let me ask you, have you done enough? No religion, no religion, no religion can ever guarantee that they've done enough. You take any religion and you ask them, if you died right now, are you 100% certain that all of your sins are forgiven? You have eternal life? Some may say, I believe so right now, right now, I believe so. If we stop it right here, I believe so. But then if you ask them, what if you die five years from now? Are you right now 100% certain? And they would have to say, we're not sure. I don't know. I don't know. If I don't keep it, if I don't live it, if I don't do enough by then, I might not. But you know when Jesus died, how many times did he die? He died one time. You know why? Because he did a good job when he did it the first time. He died that whosoever, that means you, that means me, who call upon the Lord, recognizing that the law has done its job. The law is a thermometer, has said, you are sin sick. You need help. Jesus, the Bible describes, is our great physician. He heals the sick, the the lost he came to save. And when you call upon Jesus to save your soul, he will do exactly what he promised each and every time. And he'll save your soul and he'll incorporate you into his family. And Jesus, he's the lover of your soul. He died to deliver you from religion. And it's faith in Jesus that makes you a child of God. And he mentions this, and we'll talk more about this next week. But notice verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he is talking about, I know there's a lot of people, a lot of commentators that will talk about this is spirit baptism. I simply believe it to be water baptism and for good reasons. And I'll hope we can cover this ground next week. But he's given this idea that uh, when a person is baptized, you're not, you do not get eternal life. You don't get forgiveness of sins when you get baptized. But he's saying that this is the physical picture. And by the way, baptism is what puts us into the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. When you accept Jesus to be your Savior, His blood puts you into the family of God. And when you and I experience the baptism, and by the way, Jewish baptism, I believe is far, was far more significant to the Jews than Bible baptism has been to many a Bible believer. And excuse the pun, but much about baptism has been watered down because of bad theology. But Paul's talking about the significance of experiencing an identification with Christ. And that is pictured. That's like many a wedding. You can go to a wedding and some weddings can be done in five minutes. Do you take this man? Will you take this woman? If you will, if you will say, I do, I do. I now pronounce you man and wife. And that's about as fast as it can be. But you got to sit through many songs and a some kid they picked out because he looked cute carrying down a ring that he doesn't know how to hold on to, trip and fall. And the girl bringing down the flowers, getting to fight with the little ring bearer. And, and we look at all these things and watch the people standing on the platform wearing outfits that they couldn't fit into. They're about to pass out. We watch all these things just so that this couple who all they want to do is be together for the rest of their life. They're agonizing because of all the stress that has been taking place. And, and they call that... A wonderful wedding. 
You get saved when you realize sin's my problem, hell's consequence, Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. And that's all that is necessary for salvation. But then there is something that is helpful to identify us with Christ. And that is the matter of baptism. And it is what puts us into the very church body. And it is that which is designed, by the way, Jesus Christ was baptized. He didn't get baptized because he got saved. Jesus didn't need to get saved from anything. He demonstrated, I am submitting to the teaching and the truth of John the Baptist. And when you and I, when we accept and we experience Bible baptism, then we are being identified with Christ. And that third truth that he points out here is this new identity in Christ. Verse 28. Because of what happens on the inside, and baptism is just a picture, and by the way, at a wedding ceremony, many times there's an exchanging of wedding bands. You see this? i got a wedding band here. I've had it on for nearly 25 years. It's only come off a couple of times. And you say, that's great commitment. No, it's just a lot of weight gain, and so therefore it stays and um, until death do me part, it's going to stay right there until um, some weight loss sets in. But anyway, the, the exchanging of wedding bands is just a symbol. And that wedding or that, that wedding ceremony, there's a lot of ceremonial symbolism that's there only to reflect that which is true. And the water baptism that often takes place is an outward picture of what is happening on the inside. And he tells us what happens on the inside is we actually get a new identity in Christ. Notice verse 28. Neither is there neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond nor free, neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Who's the all? Those who have been saved, only those who have been saved. Not all church members, because you can be a church member, not be saved. In other words, you can live together and not be married. Uh, uh, let, me, let me say that one again there. You can live together and not be married. You can't live together and be right with God and not be married, but you can live together and not be married. You can go to church and not be saved. And that's, uh, that's detrimental to your soul, by the way. But he's not talking about to religious people. He's talking about those who have a real relationship. And he says when you are truly saved, you received a new identity. See, Paul says that the distinctions that have been made, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, when you come to Jesus and get saved, that's all wiped out. Now, that's very special. It's very important. Now, listen carefully. In the Jewish morning prayer, which Paul would have known as a Jew, a Jewish man would thank God. And they would say to God, thank you, you've not made me a Gentile. A Jewish man would say, thank you, God, you've not made me a slave or a woman. And Paul takes that prayer and he reverses it. He says those old distinctions are now gone. They're all now gone because those distinctions are not as important as the main distinction. His name is Jesus. Now notice how this passage moves from when you're incorporated in Christ, regenerated and saved in Christ by faith. It now moves through to receiving a new identity because of Christ. And you know, we've had some age-old distinctions that have been barriers to sharing in Christ and becoming part of 
his people, his family, his body called the church. Now, I'm not saying, and neither is Paul saying, that these distinctions are erased in Christ so that we can have a unisex bathroom. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, the point that Paul is making is that these distinctions are radically subordinate to who we now are in Christ. See, I'm still a man. But what is even greater than me being a man is who I am in Christ. His child. Christ is the decisive thing about us. Not that we're Jewish. Not that we're Greek and who's, who Paul's talking to. Not that you might be a slave or not that you might be free or not that you are male or not that you are even female. The new identity in Christ is significant not only for us as individuals, but for the church and for our community. In fact, this incorporation to Christ, being one with Christ, regenerated, saved, a part of God's family, it provides the basis for a new community. It's the only place on earth that is the family of God and the body of Christ, the church. It's the only place on earth where age-old restrictions and distinctions no longer determine how we ought to relate to each other. Let people come. Are we welcome? Yes. Why would you ask? Well, because of my color. Did you have any choosing over your color? I didn't. If you got to choose yours and I didn't get to choose mine, I got gypped. Why should we make it an issue over something you didn't have any control of? The color you are significant. That's how God made you. Sure is. Your color, your size, your gender. But what's important is God loves you. Christ died for everyone. But it's only those who call upon him that will be saved. Whatever tends to divide communities, what Paul is saying is it can be done away with only, only, only in Christ Jesus. And that's what verse 28 is about. Race, class, gender. These three human distinctions have bedeviled the human race for centuries now. The strife and the suffering caused by these differences, race, class, and gender, it's incalculable as to the impact and the travesty it's been upon our societies. Only in Christ, only in Christ do we find the reconciliation of these differences. Singing we are the world didn't change the world. But taking Jesus to be your Savior, that's who will change the world. And you can discover the incredible and real unity among the different Races, classes, or gender. Regrettably, on this score that I'm speaking of, there's a lot of work still to do. Sunday mornings might still be the most segregated hour of the week in our country. 
It doesn't require great powers of observation to see that most local churches, we still tend to meet together based upon social class. You just go to areas, and we know the country club, wealthy, they're going to go to this particular church. And genders are still a confusion as to how they're to function in the body of Christ. I'm telling you, all of this can be daunting, complicated. We've had politicians trying to figure it out. And many, unfortunately, in our churches have thought along the lines of politicians far too long to try to figure it out. And the answer, the only answer, though some may say he doesn't fit their philosophy, I know Jesus is still the answer. He's always been and he always will be. Each of us can begin by resisting the temptation to allow the church to be a place for cliques, a breeding ground for folks of a similar background or income or gender to only associate with those. In fact, if our church experience has largely been with people very much like us, we might well be missing out on all that the body of Christ is meant to be. And perhaps it's time for some to waken up and see that what we've been trying to do for some time is mix things up. I'm often asked, are you trying to, to build a white church? I don't even know what that means exactly. I know what the intention is. But Jesus said, he's to build the church. Amen. Steve Vines has often said, if you cut me, I bleed the same color that every other race would bleed. Because we're all the creation of God. But if you want to become part of the family of God, you've got to take the blood of Jesus Christ to be your cleansing factor. I said, I'm not here to build a white church. This church was started and has been predominantly white people. But that's not who we're after. We're not after people that look like me. We're not after people who look like you. We're here, established here, believing God put us here in His sovereignty to let people know, everyone know, red and yellow, black and white and brown, that they're all precious in His sight. God loves them. Jesus died for them. And whosoever, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus. And the problems that we have are not what we can see on the outside. The problems that we have are what we can't see, but they're on the inside. It's a sin problem, and the blood of Jesus can reach deeper to reach the deepest of stains within our lives, to free us of guilt and shame, and to bring us into the family of Almighty God. So you, can, you and I can know experientially the love of Jesus. If you're here this morning, we've talked about it. You need to get saved. This morning you can be. I'm not talking about joining the church. It wouldn't do you, you can't join the church this morning. It wouldn't do you any good until you know for certain that Jesus is your personal Savior. You know, if you ask me, when did I get married? 
I wouldn't say, well, I've always been married. No, I have a specific date. Just like getting born into this world, a specific date. You may not remember the date, but you must know there was a time. There was a time when you called upon Jesus to be your personal Savior. Not when you called upon Him to help you because you were sick. Not when you called upon Him because you were in a car accident to help you survive. But Jesus, remember, did not die to heal your, your marriage or heal your finances or to heal your body. Jesus died on the cross to do what no person, no one could ever do and that is to heal our sin sick soul can he do something with your marriage sure can he do something with your finances of course can he do something with your body definitely but there is no profit to you if you were to get help in your marriage your finances your body you gain the world but you lose your own soul the greatest need you have is to get settled this morning whether or not Jesus is your personal savior. He stands waiting. You want to get saved? You can, but it has to be your choice, your decision. He's waiting. If you will choose him, let's stand together, please. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed.